When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. This is the Obstetrics Chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Here's our question dissection for today. Welcome to the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman, host and founder of Inside the Boards, which produces this podcast. I am here to present to you a question from Elsevier's Clinical Key. A 25-year-old Gravita 1 presents at 37 weeks gestation with a chief complaint of leakage of fluid. She endorses good fetal movement and denies vaginal bleeding and contractions. Her last sexual encounter was five days prior, and three days prior, she was found to have a urinary tract infection and started on nitrofurantoin. Physician performs a physical examination and sterile spec exam and notes the cervix is 25% effaced and one centimeter dilated. Note is also made of pooling of clear fluid in the vaginal vault, and a sample is taken to send to the lab for testing. Which of the following findings in the fluid would support the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, vaginal lactobacilli, B, coxobacilli adherent to the vaginal epithelial cells, C, leukocyte esterase, or D, microscopic arborization? And the correct answer is choice D, microscopic arborization. There's a fancy $10 word, which is a fancy way of saying ferning. The patient has leakage of fluid and pooling in the vaginal vault before the onset of labor, which raises the suspicion for premature rupture of membranes, or PROM, which is water breaking before the onset of labor. Note that if this occurs prior to 37 weeks, we call it PPROM for preterm premature rupture of membranes. At any rate, ferning will be present when the fluid is applied to a microscope slide and literally looks like a fern. That's just how amniotic fluid shows up on a slide after it dries. This is a very specific test for the presence of amniotic fluid and for the diagnosis of PROM, 
it's a dead ringer. Also, you should note that a urinary tract infection is a risk factor for premature rupture of membranes. Looking at the incorrect answer choices, A was the presence of vaginal lactobacilli. So in the normal vaginal environment, you see the presence of lactobacilli. These bacteria produce lactic acid, which helps keep the pH of the vagina acidic and inhibits the growth of organisms like E. coli, Gardnerella, Bacteroides, and even Neisseria gonorrhea. Lactobacilli in vaginal fluid, totally normal finding. Choice B was coxobacilli adherent to vaginal epithelial cells. So this is a description of clue cells, which are a classic finding in bacterial vaginosis. BV is a vulvovaginal overgrowth, uh, not quite an infection, but a shift in the vaginal flora, primarily of anaerobic bacteria like Gardnerella vaginalis. It typically presents with thin gray-white vaginal discharge that may or may not have a foul-smelling odor. Premature rupture of membranes is a potential complication of BV, but this patient doesn't have the symptoms suggestive of BV, like an increase in vaginal discharge or a vaginal odor. Finally, choice C, leukocyte esterase. So leuk esterase is an enzyme produced by white blood cells. Its presence in bodily fluids like urine and amniotic fluid suggests an infection. This test would be useful in diagnosing a patient with urinary tract infection, but does not confirm premature rupture of membranes. So, in summary, pregnant patient with a leakage of fluid without contractions, vaginal bleeding, premature rupture of membranes as the diagnosis. If the patient's before 37 weeks, it's preterm premature rupture of membranes, and you can diagnose it by examining a sample of the fluid on a microscope which will show arborization of the fluid. All right, that's it. Let's get into step two secrets. And with that, we'll get back to our show. Question one. A patient who is taking birth control pills presents with amenorrhea. What is the likely cause? Pregnancy. No form of contraception is 100% effective, including tubal ligation, especially when patient compliance is required. Question two, list the signs and symptoms of pregnancy. Amenorrhea, morning sickness, weight gain, Hegar sign, which is softening and compressibility of the lower uterine segment, Chadwick sign, which is a dark discoloration of the vulva and vaginal walls, the linea negra, melasma, also known as cloasma or the mask of pregnancy, auscultation of fetal heart sounds, gestational sac or fetus seen on ultrasound, uterine contractions, and palpation, belotment of the fetus. Question three, which vitamin should all pregnant women take? Why? Give all pregnant patients folate, dosed at 400 micrograms daily to prevent neural tube defects. Ideally, all women of reproductive age should take folate because it is most effective in the first trimester before most women know that they are pregnant. Iron supplements are frequently given to pregnant women to help prevent anemia. Both folate and iron are typically included in prenatal vitamins. Question four, define macrosomia. What is the likely cause? 
Macrosomia is defined as a newborn who weighs more than 4 kilograms, roughly 9 pounds. The cause is maternal diabetes mellitus until proven otherwise. Question 5. What routine tests should be obtained for all pregnant patients? 1. Pap smear, if the patient is due. Pregnancy does not change the frequency of screening. 2. Urinalysis, at the first visit and every visit thereafter, to screen for proteinuria, preeclampsia, and bacteria. It's not a good screen for diabetes. 3. Urine culture, obtained at 12 to 16 weeks to screen for asymptomatic bacteria. 4. Hemoglobin and hematocrit, at the first visit to see if the patient is anemic because pregnancy may worsen anemia. It should be repeated in the third trimester. 5. Blood type, RH type, and antibody screen at the first visit for identification of possible isoimmunization. 6. A syphilis test at the first visit is mandated in most states and at subsequent visits for high-risk patients. 7. Rubella antibody screen if the patient is found to be non-immune, counsel her to get postpartum immunization. Rubella live vaccine should not be given during pregnancy. 8. Glucose screen for gestational diabetes. At the first visit in patients with risk factors for diabetes mellitus, including obesity, positive family history, or age over 30 years old. Otherwise, screen at 24 to 28 weeks. Use fasting serum glucose and serum glucose levels one to two hours after an oral glucose load, which is called an oral glucose tolerance test. 9. Serum alpha-fetoprotein, performed at 15 to 20 weeks, primarily to detect open spina bifida and anencephaly. 10. Hepatitis B antigen testing, to prevent perinatal transmission of hepatitis B. 11. Varicella. All pregnant women should be tested for immunity to varicella, and vaccination can be offered postpartum for non-immune patients. 12. Thyroid function. Maternal hypothyroidism may affect fetal neurologic development. Maternal hyperthyroidism can lead to fetal and maternal complications. 13. An HIV test. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, or ACOG, advocates an opt-out approach to screening rather than an opt-in approach to increase screening rates. 14. Chlamydia screening. The Centers for Disease Control and ACOG advocate testing all pregnant women at the first prenatal visit. 15. Down syndrome screening should be offered to all pregnant patients. There are multiple ways to screen, and we'll discuss them a little bit later in this chapter. 16. Group B beta-hemolytic streptococcus, or GBS. Screen at 35 to 37 weeks with a swab of the lower vagina and rectum. And finally, others. A tuberculosis skin test should be done for women at higher risk. Testing for gonorrhea for women at higher risk of infection. Testing for toxoplasmosis is controversial. If asked, you should do chlamydia and gonorrhea cultures for any pregnant teenager. Testing for sexually transmitted diseases should be repeated in the third trimester 
for women who continue to be at risk or for women who acquire a risk factor during pregnancy. Question six. On every prenatal visit, listen to fetal heart tones and evaluate uterine size. When can these factors be first be noticed? What constitutes a size-date discrepancy? Fetal heart tones can be heard with Doppler ultrasound at 10 to 12 weeks and with a normal stethoscope at 16 to 20 weeks. At 12 weeks of gestation, the uterus enters the abdomen and is palpable at the symphysis pubis. At roughly 20 weeks, it reaches the umbilicus. Uterine size is evaluated by measuring the distance from the symphysis pubis to the top of the fundus in centimeters. At roughly 20 to 35 weeks, the measurement in centimeters should equal the number of weeks of gestation. A discrepancy greater than 2 to 3 centimeters is called a size-date discrepancy. Ultrasound should be done for further evaluation, for example, intrauterine growth retardation or multiple gestations. Question 7. When is ultrasound most accurate at estimating the fetal age? Dating is more accurate when done early in the pregnancy. The most accurate measurement is the crown rump length, or CRL, which can be done as soon as a fetal pole can be identified, around 5 weeks, up to around 13 weeks. After 13 weeks, dating is usually done by a composite measurement, including the biparietal diameter, head circumference, and femur length. Of these, the biparietal diameter is generally considered the most reliable. Question 8. What is a hydatiform mole? What are the clues to its presence? A hydatiform mole is one form of gestational trophoblastic neoplasia in which the products of conception basically become a tumor. Look for the following clues. Preeclampsia before the third trimester, a very high human chorionic gonadotropin or HCG levels during pregnancy and levels that do not return to zero after delivery or after abortion or miscarriage. First or second trimester bleeding with possible expulsion of, quote, grapes from the vagina. Grossly, the tumor looks like a bunch of grapes. And also, excessive nausea and hyperemesis can be a clue. A uterine size date discrepancy with the uterus larger than expected for dates. And finally, a snowstorm pattern on ultrasound. Question 9. Distinguish between complete and partial moles. How are hydatiform moles treated? Complete moles have a karyotype of 46XX with all chromosomes from the father and no fetal tissue. Incomplete moles usually have a karyotype of 69XXY with fetal tissue in the tumor. Treat hydatiform moles with uterine dilation and curatage. Then follow with serial measurements of HCG levels until they fall to zero. If the HCG level does not fall to zero or rises, the patient either has an invasive mole or a choriocarcinoma, and increasingly aggressive forms of gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, and needs chemotherapy, usually methotrexate or dactinomycin, both of which are extremely effective. Question 10. How is intrauterine growth retardation defined? What causes it? IUGR is defined as fetal size below the 10th percentile for age. Symmetric IUGR, a decrease in abdomen and head measurements, is caused by intrinsic or fetal factors. 
Fetal factors include torch infections, which we'll talk about a little later, and congenital anomalies. Asymptomatic IUGR, a decrease in abdomen measurements but normal head measurements, is caused by extrinsic or maternal versus placental factors. Maternal factors include smoking, alcohol or drug use, and lupus. Placental factors include hypertension, preeclampsia, placental abruption, and twin-twin transfusion. Question 11. When should ultrasound be used to evaluate the fetus? The indications for ultrasound are now quite liberal. Order ultrasound for all patients who have a size date discrepancy greater than 2 to 3 centimeters or risk factors for pregnancy-related problems. For example, hypertension, diabetes, renal disease, lupus, smoking, alcohol or drug use, and history of previous pregnancy-related problems. Ultrasound is also used when fetal death, distress, or abortion or miscarriage is suspected. For example, a baby who stops kicking, vaginal bleeding, or slow fetal heartbeat on auscultation. Question 12. How is fetal well-being evaluated? A non-stress test is the easiest initial screen. It is performed with the mother at rest. A fetal heart rate tracing is obtained for 20 minutes. A normal strip has at least two accelerations of heart rate, each at least 15 beats per minute above the baseline and lasting at least 15 seconds. A biophysical profile is composed of a non-stress test and an ultrasound evaluation, scoring fetal breathing, movement, muscle tone, heart rate, and amniotic fluid to determine oligo versus polyhydramnios. If the fetus scores poorly on the biophysical profile, the next test is the contraction stress test, which looks for uteroplacental dysfunction. Oxytocin is given and a fetal heart strip is monitored. If late decelerations are seen on the fetal heart strip with each contraction, the test is positive. In most cases of a positive contraction stress test, a cesarean section is performed. Question 13. True or false? A biophysical profile is often used in high-risk pregnancies in the absence of obvious problems. True. For patients referred for antenatal testing, a non-stress test or biophysical profile may be done once or twice a week from the start of the third trimester until delivery to monitor for potential problems. Question 14. True or false? Aspirin should be avoided during pregnancy. True. Use acetaminophen instead. One important exception is patients with antiphospholipid syndrome or a history of preeclampsia in a prior pregnancy in whom aspirin may improve pregnancy outcome and prevent recurrent preeclampsia. Subcutaneous unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin can also be used to treat antiphospholipid syndrome in pregnancy. Question 15. Define post-term pregnancy. Why is it a major concern? How is it treated? Post-term pregnancy is defined as more than 42 weeks of gestation. Both prematurity and post-maturity increase perinatal morbidity and mortality rates. With post-maturity, dystocia, or difficult delivery, becomes more common because of the increased size of the infant. In general, if the gestational age is known to be accurate and the cervix is favorable, labor is induced. If the cervix is not favorable or the dates are uncertain, 
twice weekly biophysical profiles are done. At 41 weeks, most obstetricians advise induction of labor. A 2012 meta-analysis demonstrated that routine labor induction at greater than 41 weeks compared with expectant management resulted in lower perinatal mortality and a lower rate of meconium aspiration syndrome. Question 16. What two rare disorders are associated with prolonged gestation? Anencephaly and placental sulfatase deficiency. Question 17. What are the normal changes and complaints in pregnancy? Normal changes in pregnancy include nausea or vomiting, amenorrhea, heavy or possibly even painful feeling of the breasts, increased pigmentation of the nipples and areolae, Montgomery tubercles or sebaceous glands in the areola, backache, linea nigra, melasma, striae gravidarum, and mild ankle edema. Heartburn and increased frequency of urination are also common complaints. Question 18. What test is used to screen for neural tube defects? At what time during pregnancy is it measured? Explain the significance of a low or high alpha-fetoprotein level in the maternal serum. Maternal alpha-fetoprotein is most accurate when measured between 15 and 20 weeks of gestation. A low AFP may represent Down syndrome, fetal demise, or inaccurate dates. A high AFP may represent neural tube defects such as anencephaly and spina bifida, ventral wall defects such as omphalocele or gastroschisis, and also can signify multiple gestation or inaccurate dates. Question 19. What should be done if the AFP is elevated? Repeat the test. As many as 30% of elevated maternal serum AFP tests results may be elevated but are normal upon repeat testing. The initial elevation is not associated with an increased risk of neural tube defects. Question 20. What further testing should a patient undergo if the AFP remains elevated? If the AFP remains elevated, the patient is advised first to undergo ultrasound to determine whether a neural tube defect or other anomaly is present. The ultrasound is also used to confirm gestational age, number of fetuses, and fetal viability. Further evaluation with amniocentesis may be required if the ultrasound findings are uncertain or there is a concern for non-visualized neural tube defects via elevated AFP levels in amniotic fluid or detection of acetylcholinesterase in amniotic fluid. There's a small risk of miscarriage after amniocentesis. Question 21. What prenatal tests are available to screen for Down syndrome? The first trimester combined test, integrated tests, sequential testing, contingent testing, the quadruple test, and maternal plasma-based tests. The ACOG recommends that all women be offered screening before 20 weeks of gestation. Question 22. What is the first trimester combined test? When is it performed? The first trimester combined test is performed at 11 to 13 weeks of gestation. The test involves determination of nuchal translucency by ultrasound, combined with serum pregnancy-associated plasma protein A and serum HCG. Chorionic villus sampling is used for women who have, the f have this first trimester screening and test positive. The combined test is most appropriate for women who place a higher value 
on identifying Down syndrome during the first trimester than on the risk of pregnancy loss from invasive diagnostic testing, such as chorionic villus sampling. Question 23. Describe the integrated tests. The full integrated test includes an ultrasound measurement of nuchal translucency at 10 to 13 weeks of gestation, a pregnancy-associated plasma protein A at 10 to 13 weeks of gestation, an alpha-fetoprotein, unconjugated estradiol, HCG, and inhibin A at 15 to 18 weeks of gestation. Results of the full integrated test are not available until the second trimester. The full integrated test is most appropriate for women who place a higher value on minimizing the risk of pregnancy loss from invasive diagnostic testing than on first trimester identification of Down syndrome. The serum integrated test is the same as the full integrated test, but without the ultrasound evaluation of nuchal translucency. This test is used in areas where expertise in the ultrasound measurement of nuchal translucency is not available. Results of the serum integrated test are not available until the second trimester. Stepwise sequential testing has been developed to provide a risk estimate during the first trimester. The first trimester portion of the integrated screen is performed. If the tests indicate a very high risk of having an affected fetus, chorionic villus sampling is offered. Those women whose results do not place them at very high risk of having an affected fetus go on to have the second trimester portion of the screening. Contingent testing has not been proven efficacious in a prospective clinical trial. Question 24. What is the quadruple test? For whom is it typically used? When is it performed? The quadruple test includes the serum markers alpha-fetoprotein, unconjugated estradiol, HCG, and inhibin A. The quadruple test is the best available test for women who present for prenatal care in the second trimester, but can be used for women who receive earlier prenatal care. It is performed at 15 to 18 weeks of gestation. Question 25. What is the maternal plasma-based test? This is the newest option that is just becoming widely available to screen for Down syndrome, trisomy 18 and trisomy 13. This test, also called cell-free fetal DNA testing, detects fetal DNA in the circulation. It has detection rate greater than 98%, false positive rate of 1%, and false negative rate of 1.4% for Down syndrome. The detection rates are lower and the false negative rate higher for trisomy 18 and trisomy 13. Cell-free fetal DNA testing is not yet validated in low-risk women and is not commonly used as a primary screening test in the United States. However, it can be used in higher-risk women, that is, women who will be older than 35 at the time of delivery, presence of sonographic findings associated with fetal aneuploidy, history of previous pregnancy with fetal trisomy, positive screening results on tests such as the first trimester combined test, the integrated test, or the quadruple test. As such, it is commonly used as a secondary screening test. Question 26. What is the next step if a woman has a positive screening test for Down syndrome? Offer fetal karyotype determination. This is done by chorionic villus sampling in the first trimester and by amniocentesis in the second trimester. Question 27. 
Why is chorionic villus sampling done instead of amniocentesis in some cases? CVS can be done at 9 to 12 weeks of gestation, earlier than amniocentesis, and is generally reserved for women with previously affected offspring or known genetic disease. It offers the advantage of a first trimester abortion if the fetus is affected. Chorionic villus sampling is associated with a slightly higher miscarriage rate than amniocentesis. Question 28. True or false? Chorionic villus sampling can detect neural tube defects, but not genetic disorders. False. Chorionic villus sampling can detect genetic or chromosomal disorders, but not neural tube defects. Question 29. Cover the right-hand column and specify the effects of the following classic teratogens on an exposed fetus. Thalidomide causes phocomelia, the absence of long bones, and flipper-like appearance of the hands. Antineoplastics can have many types of defects. Tetracycline can result in yellow or brown teeth. Aminoglycosides can result in deafness. Valproic acid can result in spina bifida or hypospadias. Progesterone can cause masculinization of a female fetus. Cigarettes can contribute to intrauterine growth retardation, low birth weight, and prematurity. Oral contraceptive pills can cause Vactoral syndrome. The V is for vertebral anomalies. A is for imperforate anus. C is for cardiac anomalies. The T and the E are for tracheoesophageal fistula. R is for renal anomalies. And L is for limb anomalies. Lithium can cause cardiac Epstein anomalies. Radiation can cause intrauterine growth retardation, central nervous system defects, eye defects, and malignancy such as leukemia. Alcohol can result in fetal alcohol syndrome. Phenytoin can cause craniofacial, limb, and cerebrovascular defects, as well as intellectual disability. Warfarin can cause craniofacial defects, intrauterine growth retardation, central nervous system malformations, and stillbirth. Carbamazepine can cause fingernail hypoplasia and craniofacial defects. Isotretinoin can cause central nervous system, craniofacial, ear, and cardiovascular defects. Note that vitamin A in general is considered teratogenic when recommended intake levels are exceeded. Iodine can cause goiter and neonatal hypothyroidism. Cocaine can cause cerebral infarcts and intellectual disability. Diazepam can cause cleft lip and or palate. And diethylstilbestrol, or DES, can cause clear cell vaginal cancer, adenosis, and cervical incompetence. Question 30. List the teratogenic effects of maternal diabetes mellitus. What is the best way to reduce these complications? Cardiovascular malformations, cleft lip and or palate, caudal regression, which the lower half of the body is incompletely formed, neural tube defects, left colon hypoplasia or immaturity, macrosomia, which is the most common and classic effect, microsomia, which can occur if the mother has long-standing diabetes, tight control of glucose during pregnancy dramatically reduces these complications. Question 31. 
What other problems does maternal diabetes cause in pregnancy? In the mother, diabetes can result in polyhydramnios and preeclampsia, as well as the complications of diabetes. Problems in infants born to a diabetic mother, other than birth defects, include an increased risk of respiratory distress syndrome and post-delivery hypoglycemia from fetal islet cell hypertrophy due to maternal and thus fetal hyperglycemia. After birth, the infant is cut off from the mother's glucose and the hyperglycemia resolves, but the infant's islet cells still overproduce insulin and cause hypoglycemia. The risk can be decreased pre-delivery with strict glucose control. Post-delivery, treat infant hypoglycemia with intravenous glucose. Question 32. True or false? Oral hypoglycemic agents should not be used during pregnancy. Historically, this has been true, though some obstetricians are now using oral agents. Use insulin to treat diabetes if diet and exercise cannot control glucose levels. Oral hypoglycemics, unlike insulin, may cross the placenta and cause fetal hypoglycemia. Question 33. What commonly used drugs are generally considered safe in pregnancy? A short list of drugs that are generally safe in pregnancy includes acetaminophen, penicillins, cephalosporins, erythromycin, nitrofurantoin, H2 receptor blockers, antacids, heparin, hydralazine, methyl dopa, labetalol, insulin, and docusate. Question 34. What are the TORCH syndromes? What do they cause? TORCH is an acronym for several maternal infections that can cross the placenta and can cause intrauterine fetal infections that may result in birth defects. Most TORCH infections can cause intellectual disability, microcephaly, hydrocephalus, hepatosplenomegaly, jaundice, anemia, low birth weight, and intrauterine growth retardation. For TORCH, the T stands for Toxoplasma gondii. Look for exposure to cats. Specific defects include intracranial calcifications and chorioretinitis. O stands for other and includes varicella zoster that causes limb hypoplasia and scarring of the skin, syphilis that causes rhinitis, saber shins, Hutchinson teeth, interstitial keratitis, and skin lesions. R is for rubella which is worst in the first trimester. Some recommend abortion if the mother has rubella in the first trimester. Always check antibody status on the first visit in patients with a poor immunization history. C is for cytomegalovirus, the most common infection of the torch group. Look for deafness, cerebral calcifications, and microphthalmia. H is for herpes. Look for vesicular skin lesions with positive zinc smears and a history of maternal herpes lesions. Question 35. True or false? With most in utero infections that can cause birth defects, obvious clues are present in the mother and or fetus at birth. False. Although the USMLE probably will give clues, the mother may be asymptomatic, that is, she may have a subclinical infection, and the infant may be asymptomatic at birth, developing only later such symptoms as learning disability or autism. Question 36. What do you need to know about HIV testing and transmission in mother and child? In untreated HIV-positive patients, HIV is transmitted to the fetus in roughly 
25% of cases. Roughly one-third of transmissions occur antenatally, one-third in the peripartum period, and one-third postpartum, most commonly via breastfeeding. Transmission rates are much higher in the setting of acute HIV infection, in which a woman seroconverts during pregnancy. When three-drug therapy is given to the mother prenatally and zidovudine is given to the infant for six weeks after birth, HIV transmission is reduced to less than 2%. A non-infected infant may still have a positive HIV antibody test at birth because maternal antibodies can cross the placenta. Within 6 to 18 months, however, the test reverts to negative. This is why infants of HIV-positive mothers are tested using a direct HIV DNA PCR test at birth at 4 to 6 weeks of age and 4 months of age. Babies who have these three negative tests should have an HIV antibody test at 12 and 18 months of age. Cesarean section is recommended for viremic women with a viral load greater than 1,000 copies at the time of delivery in order to prevent HIV transmission to the child. Mothers with HIV should avoid breastfeeding since the virus crosses into breast milk. The World Health Organization recommends that in developing countries, mothers continue breastfeeding while the mother or infant takes antiretroviral drugs. Question 37. What should you do if a pregnant woman has genital herpes? A decision is generally made when the mother goes into labor, not beforehand. If, at the time of true labor, the mother has active, visible genital herpes lesions, do a cesarean section to prevent transmission to the fetus. If, at the time of true labor, the mother has no visible genital herpes lesions, the child can be delivered vaginally. Women with a history of genital herpes should be offered suppressive therapy with acyclovir to maximize their chance at a vaginal delivery. Question 38. What should you do for the child if the mother has chronic hepatitis B or chickenpox? If the mother has chronic hepatitis B, give the infant the first hepatitis B vaccine shot and hepatitis B immunoglobulin at birth and a bath as soon as possible. If the mother contracts chickenpox in the last five days of pregnancy or the first two days after delivery, give the infant varicella zoster immunoglobulin. Question 39. How do you treat gonorrheal and chlamydial genital infections during pregnancy? The treatment for gonorrhea remains unchanged because ceftriaxone is safe during pregnancy. For chlamydia infection, give azithromycin, amoxicillin, or erythromycin base instead of doxycycline or erythromycin estolate. Question 40. How is tuberculosis treated in pregnancy? In a similar way as in a non-pregnant patient. Use isoniazid, rifampin, and ethambutol if the risk of a drug-resistant organism is low. Pyrazinamide should be used with caution because of a lack of data on the risk of teratogenicity. However, pyrazinamide should be added if a drug-resistant organism is suspected. Streptomycin, which is rarely a rarely used second-line agent, should be avoided. Give vitamin B6 to pregnant patients treated with isoniazid to avoid a deficiency. Question 41. What are the signs of placental separation during the third stage of labor? The signs of placental separation include a fresh show of blood from the vagina, lengthening of the umbilical cord, and a rising fundus that becomes firm and globular. If placental separation does not occur within 30 minutes of delivery, diagnose a retained placenta. Question 42. True or false? 
After cesarean section, a patient may have a vaginal delivery in the future. It depends on the type of cesarean. After a classic vertical uterine incision, patients must have cesarean sections for all future deliveries because of the increased rate of uterine rupture with vaginal delivery. After a low transverse horizontal uterine incision, the incision of choice, a patient may deliver future pregnancies vaginally with only a slightly increased risk of uterine rupture. Question 43. Define lochia. When is it a problem? For the first several days after delivery, some vaginal discharge, known as lochia, is normal. It is red for the first few days and gradually turns white or yellowish white by day 10. If the lochia is foul-smelling, suspect endometritis. Question 44. What treatment may be given to a woman who does not want to breastfeed? Because the breast can become engorged with milk and thus quite painful, you may prescribe tight-fitting bras, ice packs, and analgesia to reduce symptoms. Medications for the suppression of lactation, such as bromocryptine and estrogens or oral contraceptive pills, are generally no longer recommended due to risks of thromboembolism and stroke. Question 45. List the common contraindications for breastfeeding. 1. Use of alcohol or illicit drugs, with a few caveats that won't be tested on the USMLE. 2. HIV infection, though the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding in developing countries, as noted in the previous question 36, because of the risks of unsafe drinking water. 3. Some medications, including antineoplastic agents, anti-metabolic agents like cyclophosphamide or mercaptopurine, some anticonvulsants such as topiramate, and amiodarone. Question 46. What are the options for anesthesia in obstetric patients? Why? Many women elect to manage the pain of labor with breathing and other relaxation techniques. Epidural anesthesia is the most common method in obstetric patients and is generally safe and effective. Spinal anesthesia can interfere with the mother's ability to push and is associated with a higher incidence of hypotension than epidural anesthesia, but is commonly used for anesthesia in cesarean sections. General anesthesia is the method of choice for emergent cesarean sections when time is of the essence, but it involves a higher risk of aspiration and resulting pneumonia because the gastroesophageal sphincter is relaxed in pregnancy and patients usually have not refrained from eating before going into labor. There is also concern about the effect of general anesthetic agents on the fetus. Question 47. True or false? Asymptomatic bacteria detected on routine urinalysis should be treated during pregnancy. True. Up to 20% of patients develop cystitis or pyelonephritis if untreated. This rate is much higher than in non-pregnant patients, who should not be treated for asymptomatic bacteria. In pregnancy, the gravid uterus can compress the ureters, and increased progesterone can decrease the tone of the ureters, increasing urinary stasis and the risk of urinary tract infection. Question 48. What do you need to know about vaginal GBS colonization and pregnancy? Pregnant women should be tested for vaginal GBS at 35 to 37 weeks gestation. Women who are carriers should be treated during labor with penicillin G or ampicillin. Earlier testing and treatment, such as during the second trimester, is ineffective because GBS frequently returns, 
and usually they are dangerous only during labor and delivery. The exception is for women with GBS bacteria, which is often detected on first trimester screening urine culture. These women are not retested, but are treated empirically during labor, as they are assumed to be chronically colonized with GBS. The reason for treating asymptomatic carriers is to prevent neonatal sepsis and endometritis, both of which common, are commonly caused by GBS. Question 49. When does mastitis occur? How do you recognize and treat it? Mastitis, or inflammation of the breast, usually develops in the first two months postpartum. Breasts are red, indurated, and painful, and nipple cracks or fissuring may be seen. Staphylococcus aureus is the usual cause. Treat with analgesics, such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen, with warm and or cold compresses, and continued breastfeeding with the affected breasts even though it is painful. Use a breast pump to empty the breast if needed, to prevent further milk blockage and abscess formation. An anti-staphylococcal antibiotic, such as cephalexin or dicloxacillin, is usually given for more than mild symptoms. If a fluctuant mass develops or there is no response to antibiotics within a few days, an abscess is likely present and must be drained. Question 50. What are the diagnostic signs and symptoms of preeclampsia? When does it occur? Preeclampsia causes hypertension, defined as two blood pressure readings greater than 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury, separated by at least four hours, in a woman with previously normal blood pressure, or a greater than 30-point increase in systolic, or a greater than 15-point increase in diastolic blood pressure over baseline in a woman with underlying hypertension. Other signs and symptoms include proteinuria, which is 2 plus or more on protein on urinalysis, greater than 0.3 on a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio, or greater than 300 milligrams on a 24-hour urine collection, oliguria, edema of the hands or face, headache, visual disturbances, or the HELP syndrome, which is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets, and right upper quadrant or epigastric pain. Preeclampsia usually occurs in the third trimester, but can be diagnosed after 20 weeks gestation. New guidelines do not require proteinuria for diagnosis, since many women don't meet the protein cutoff, which could delay diagnosis and treatment. Question 51. What are the main risk factors for preeclampsia? How is it treated? The risk factors, in decreasing order of importance, include chronic renal disease, chronic hypertension, family history of preeclampsia, multiple gestations, nulliparity, extremes of reproductive age, the classic patient is a young woman with her first child, diabetes, and black race. The definitive treatment is delivery. This is the treatment of choice if the patient is at term. In a preterm patient with mild disease, the hypertension can be treated with hydralazine, labetalol, or methyl dopa. Advise bed rest and observe. If the patient has severe disease, defined as oliguria, mental status changes, headache, blurred vision, pulmonary edema, cyanosis, HELP syndrome, blood pressure greater than 160 over 110 millimeters of mercury, or progression of to eclampsia, which is seizures, deliver the infant once the mother is stabilized. Otherwise, both mother and infant may die. Question 52. 
Define the different types of hypertension in pregnancy. This is high yield. Chronic hypertension. Hypertension diagnosed pre-pregnancy or elevated blood pressure of at least 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury on two occasions, taken at least four hours apart, before 20 weeks gestation or persisting longer than 12 weeks after delivery. Gestational hypertension is new elevated blood pressures after 20 weeks gestation with no proteinuria. If a patient presents for care after 20 weeks of pregnancy, you may not be able to differentiate chronic hypertension from gestational hypertension. Preeclampsia. This is systolic blood pressure of at least 140 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic blood pressure of at least 90 millimeters of mercury on at least two occasions, taken at least four hours apart, plus new onset proteinuria, again, which is at least 300 milligrams of protein in a 24-hour urine sample or a urinary protein-creatinine ratio of 0.3 or greater, or a severe feature. A single severe feature in combination with hypertension is sufficient for the diagnosis. The following are severe features of preeclampsia. 1. Elevated blood pressure, defined as systolic over 160 millimeters of mercury or diastolic over 110 millimeters of mercury. 2. Elevated creatinine level, greater than 1.1 milligrams per deciliter or greater than two times baseline. 3. Hepatic dysfunction, a transaminase levels greater than two times the upper limit of normal or right or upper quadrant or epigastric pain. 4. New onset headache or visual disturbances. 5. Platelet count less than 100,000. 6. Pulmonary edema. Question 53. What are the recommended gestational ages for delivery for chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, and preeclampsia? For chronic hypertension, consider delivery at 38 weeks gestation, depending on blood pressure control throughout pregnancy. For gestational hypertension, delivery is recommended at 37 weeks gestation. For preeclampsia with no severe features, delivery is recommended at 37 weeks gestation. For preeclampsia with severe features, timing is based on maternal factors and fetal considerations, with delivery ideally occurring at 34 weeks gestation. However, urgent delivery may be required earlier, with the use of betamethasone to accelerate fetal lung maturity between 24 and 34 weeks gestation. Question 54. What are the problems with chronic maternal hypertension in pregnancy? Pre-existing hypertension, present before conception, increases the risk for intrauterine growth retardation and preeclampsia. Question 55. When is edema normal during pregnancy? When is it not? Mild ankle edema is normal in pregnancy, but moderate to severe edema of the ankles or edema of the hands or face is likely to be preeclampsia. Question 56. What should you consider if preeclampsia develops before the third trimester? The possibility of gestational trophoblastic disease, that is, hydatiform mole or choriocarcinoma. Question 57. Distinguish between preeclampsia and eclampsia. How can eclampsia be prevented? Preeclampsia plus seizures equals eclampsia. Eclampsia can be prevented by regular prenatal care so that you catch the disease in the preeclamptic stage and treat appropriately. Question 58. What should you use to treat seizures in eclampsia? 
What are the toxic effects? Use magnesium sulfate for eclamptic seizures. It also lowers blood pressure. Toxic effects include hyporeflexia, the first sign of toxicity, respiratory depression, central nervous system depression, coma, and death. If toxicity occurs, the first step is to stop the magnesium infusion. Question 59. True or false? When eclampsia occurs, you must deliver the infant immediately, regardless of maternal status. False. Do not try to deliver the infant until the mother is stable. For example, do not perform a cesarean section while the mother is having seizures. Question 60. Why are preeclampsia and eclampsia so important? Preeclampsia and eclampsia cause uteroplacental insufficiency, intrauterine growth retardation, fetal demise, and increased maternal morbidity and mortality rates. Question 61. True or false? Preeclampsia and eclampsia are risk factors for development of hypertension in the future. False. But they are risk factors for later cardiovascular disease. Question 62. What are the major causes of maternal mortality associated with childbirth? In decreasing order, pulmonary embolism, pregnancy-induced hypertension, including preeclampsia and eclampsia, and hemorrhage. Question 63. How do you recognize an amniotic fluid pulmonary embolism? Look for a recent postpartum mother who developed sudden shortness of breath, tachypnea, chest pain, hypotension, and disseminated intravascular coagulation. Treatment is supportive. Question 64. Divine oligohydramnios. What causes it? Why is it worrisome? Oligohydramnios means a deficiency of amniotic fluid, less than 500 milliliters or an amniotic fluid index of less than 5. Causes include IUGR, premature rupture of the membranes, post-maturity, and renal agenesis, Potter disease. Oligohydramnios may cause fetal problems, including pulmonary hypoplasia, cutaneous or skeletal abnormalities due to compression, and hypoxia due to cord compression. Question 65. Define polyhydramnios. What causes it? Why is it worrisome? Polyhydramnios means an excess of amniotic fluid greater than 2 liters or an amniotic fluid index greater than 25. Causes include maternal diabetes, multiple gestation, neural tube defects such as anencephaly and spina bifida, gastrointestinal anomalies such as omphalocele and esophageal atresia, chromosomal abnormalities such as trisomy 18 and 21, and hydrops fetalis. Polyhydramnios can cause maternal problems, including postpartum uterine atony with resultant postpartum hemorrhage, and maternal dyspnea, an overdistended uterus compromises pulmonary function. Question 66. When does a standard home pregnancy test become positive? Roughly two weeks after conception, about the time when the woman realizes that her period is late. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. 
Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.